Uh, let's begin with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for gathering us together in your house today and giving us your gracious gifts. Um, we thank you especially today for the reception of our new members into the congregation. We thank you that you have worked faith in their lives and caused them to confess publicly their faith in your name. And now we pray that their life of faith is sustained and nurtured with care and love and joy here at Ascension Lutheran Church. Now we ask your blessing upon our Bible study as we seek to learn more about what it is exactly that you are bringing to us when we gather in worship so that we can sing with more joy and fervor your praises. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, this class is going to be on the history, the theological purpose, and the roots of the worship service that Christianity has inherited in our time and place. Okay. Um, oh, I forgot. Now I have a speaker. Haven't talked here in a while. There, that's probably better. Okay, so uh, so what we're going to be looking at through the course of this class is we're going to be looking at the divine service, and we're going to be looking at the individual pieces of it, and we're going to learn the history behind them and where they come from. So we're going to look a lot at the, there's some really fascinating things in the history of Christian worship, um, which will give us insight into why they're still done today, because many of the things in the service that we use, what do you think the average age of an individual piece in the service is? 1,500 uh, uh, years. 1,500 years. All right. Anybody think younger or older? I think older. I think there's a lot of parts that come from um, the worship in the temple. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, we have roots of our worship that go back even prior to the incarnation of Jesus. Right? So there's a lot of things in our worship that we've inherited that have withstood empires and eras. And we're going to look at the reason for that. And we're also going to look at the biblical basis for each of those pieces. And then we're also going to talk about all the stuff that you see used in the service. Whether it's the clothing that the pastor wears at different times, or the different things you see up on the front and the altar area, why the church is set up the way it is, why the room is even oriented the way it is, and all that stuff. So all that's going to get covered in the course of the class. But... If you have any question that doesn't get covered, any curiosity or something that you've thought, you know, I've been a Lutheran for 30 years and we've been doing this thing, and I never really understood why. Where did that come from? Why do we do it? Please ask, and we'll, we'll cover it. All right? So today what we're going to get into is the simple question of what is worship? What is worship? So before we dig into that... Let's start with some definitions, because the reason we do a class like this is so that our ideas about things grow and deepen and change. So, what when you think of what is worship, what do you think of? Praying. Praise. What is it? Praying. Praying, okay, we got praying, what else? Praise. Praise, okay. Confession. Confession, okay. Giving. Giving, okay. Absolution. Absolution, okay. All right, we'll stop right there. So of the first five things that we just said, only one of them is a work that God is doing. The other four are what we are doing. Right? So this actually tails in nicely, because I figured that would happen, because the first thing that most people in, in uh, 21st century America think of when they think of worship is they think of praying and singing. 
Okay? Now, those are parts of worship, and that aspect of the worship service is probably the most appropriate um, thing to describe using the term worship. But there's a lot more happening on Sunday morning than that. So, worship can be described from two perspectives. One, from the assembly of worshiping Christians, which is most of the answers that were just given. Right? The gathering to praise, give thanks, the giving of offering, the glorifying of God in faith. And all of those things fit under that category of worship. But there's another way, and that's from God's perspective. Right? So where we're viewing worship from below or viewing worship from above. And that element of, of worship is his service and his sacrifice to and for us. Okay? So the term worship is really an appropriate term to describe our response to what God is doing. Okay? Just a moment, Rob. Um, And that response is to God's generous activity. And so the term that you're going to hear for the whole worship service in this class is called the divine service. And that term is going to be used because it encompasses not only our worship of God, but the work that he is doing, which is the basis for our worship of him. Because both of those things are occurring on Sunday morning when you gather to worship God. Right. So think of it this way. Um, the way that we often think of worship, we often think of it as a one-sided conversation. So we think of it as the stuff that we do. And then you might ask yourself the question, well, why are we doing that stuff? Why am I praying? Why am I singing praises? Why am I confessing my sins? What do you think? Because God is worthy. And because he is not silent, he's coming to us in word and sacrament. It's right. our, our, our response to those things. God is not silent on Sunday morning. Right? So if God is silenced on Sunday morning, the basis for the work that we do disappears. There's no reason to pray. There's no reason to give praise. I don't even know that he's worthy of praise if I remove the stuff that he's doing from service, right? So there's a reason that this practice is what has remained in our church, whereas if you go to a standard non-denominational church, the service looks very different. So how many of you have been to kind of a big non-denom service before? Can, you, can one of you maybe give us a brief description of what it was like? What did, what did it contain? There's a stage. Okay, a stage. Um, there's not a pulpit. No pulpit. There's not a font. No font. Um, there is a message that is 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 often good. Okay, good. So a good sermon. Yeah. But I and then there's a whole lot of singing, which I guess is singing is yeah. the the praise part. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so God is coming to you in the message there, I guess. But it's more pastor message than God's word, from what I've seen. Use it based on God's word, leaving God's word, but it's more of the pastor's interpretation than actually hearing the word of God. Okay. Um, Anybody else have a different part? That's my experience at Orchard Hill. There's no, um, like, Bible readings. Okay, no Bible readings. That's No scripture readings. And the, the singing is quite different. It's only praise songs, which is what... I feel 
and it's not uh, traditional hymns at all. Okay, so or if there is a traditional hymn, they'll. Well, we'll get not. into music at a later time because the lyrical stuff you're talking about is actually more deeply rooted and, and related to the other things that we're going to discuss. Okay. So when we discuss those, you'll be able to make sense of um, that, like those lyrics are actually a reflection of their theology, right? And so the reason it sounds odd to you is because the part of their theology that comes from, we don't agree with, which is why if one of those songs, whether it's a hymn from an old hymn book or a newer song that's been written, if those words are in there, it disqualifies it regardless of what instrument is playing it and how long it's been around. Okay. Uh, anybody else have anything to add to the non-denom experience? Yeah. They don't have much of a liturgy. Okay. They don't have much of what we would call a liturgy. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Amy? No Lord's Prayer and there's no cross anywhere. Okay, no Lord's Prayer and no cross. Okay. No creeds. No creeds, okay. And the, the effect that all this happens is not due to the size. Because I've been to very, very large LCMS churches, and it's done the same as us. Yeah. Well, and, even, and you'll find if you go to a more contemporized version of our, our churches, there's still a large portion of what we're going to discuss in this class present there. Correct. And you can make arguments as to whether you think maybe they removed, like a, some of the particulars that they removed maybe shouldn't have been removed. But they're going to have much more of a structured liturgy, which, again, we'll get into the definition of that term because it's, it's kind of a chameleon now. Um, but um, there's going to be much more structured liturgy there. And that's based on a large history of the church and the scriptures as to why it's set up that way. Okay? Any other thoughts? There's one other thing I was looking for that is usually not present that is quite significant. I don't know. This probably is nimbic, the children. The children, what oh, do you mean? That's right. yeah. the, the children oh, that's right. Oh, children's mm -hmm. yeah, they usually have a children's church. So in the sermon, which we talked about being the only portion of remaining in their service that's coming from God through the medium of a pastor, most of the kids go to children's church. And the pastor is always dressed as Joe off the street or Jane off the street. Yeah, so the pastor is not wearing the clothes that I wear, right? They're usually... In most cases, I think, unless they're really pushing hard, the I'm just one of the people vibe, and they're doing the shorts and the sandals, most of them are wearing like a suit and a tie and a jacket. They look nice. They don't dress badly, but they, like, the way I sort of thought about that is if I'm going to visit you in the hospital and somebody wants a prayer, if I'm wearing this, they'll stop me, even if they don't know who I am. If I'm wearing a suit and tie, I may look real nice, but I'll just walk right by. Not because I don't want to or they don't want to, but because they have no idea what I'm there for. They probably are going to assume I'm there to visit somebody I know, right? Uh, yeah. So I think I have what you're thinking. Okay. Communion. It's related to that. Communion's missing. Communion is missing, but there's a, there's a physical thing that is not in the space that illustrates the import of communion. There's no altar. Well, that's a, yeah, there's okay. a stage. There's no altar. Well, you could still have an altar even on a stage, but they have no altar, right? Um, so what usually occupies the space the altar occupies in our church? A plexiglass podium, perhaps. Okay, a plexiglass podium, so the pastor would preach from that spot. A band. Or a band, right? Those are the two biggest ones. The music, the music band is there or the pastor is there, right? 
And so we're going to look a little bit too about how you can tell a lot about a church just by the way the physical space they worship in is set up. So if you're painting something or you're drawing a picture and you want to draw people's attention to it, where do you put it? There's a term for it. Center stage, right? It's the focal point. So upstairs, when you walk in our front door, what is the focal point of the room? The altar. The altar. Because the basis of our life in Christ is upon the sacrificial gifts of Jesus. And that's where they come from. When you're still in the narthex, that is still the focal point. Yep. Yep. That's intentional. Um, So we'll we'll look at some of the ways that the historical church would set up in spaces that we don't do here and some that we still do. And and there's some really cool, interesting little factoids. So the other insight that this this should give you is as you learn more about the space you worship in and why it's set up the way it is, and some of the unique nature of our worship, you'll better be able to understand and help people who come into it who have never done it. So imagine somebody coming from a non-denom church that we just described, and they come and worship with us. It's going to be all kinds of crazy and weird to them. Because the space is different. The music is different. The words are different. The structure of the service is very weird. I remember one of the first things I realized about this was I was watching a video, and I might send a link of, of this to the class, of a guy who goes around to different churches, and he attends one of their worship services, and then he sets up a meeting with the pastor to talk to them about their church body. And so there's a guy who did this. to a He was a, a general Protestant Christian, and he went to an LCMS Lutheran church in Illinois. And so he, as he was participating in the service, he just had, took notes about things that he had questions about. And even down to things like as minute as this, and this sort of blew me away because I just assumed it was normal, but it's not, <coughs> is that sometimes the pastor looks at you and a lot of times the pastor is like this. Correct. Yeah. If you go to a non-denom church, does the pastor ever turn around and face the other way? No. 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 Why? That's bad TV. It's bad. Well, <laughs> one, it's bad TV. But there's an actual theological reason oriented towards the space that they've built. There's nothing for him to look at. Right. So the pastor's role is the mediator between God and people. And in a setup on a stage with no altar, he's not between anything. He's only in front of things. Right? So all these sorts of things will, will come up as we go through the different pieces of the liturgy. Um, yeah, Pastor, yeah, run. I've been to a couple of those. and Either it's in an auditorium or it's like movie theater seats. Sure. And it's so impersonal. And or, or you have folding chairs. And I always thought that there's nothing grabbing me here. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's often, uh, in a lot of, especially bigger non-denom churches, they have a lot of things going on, and so they set up a worship space to be a multi-purpose room. Right? Um, historically, the church never made the sanctuary a multi-purpose room because you don't set up a space to worship God that you're also going to do a bunch of other stuff in because that was seen as the defining sacred moment between God and his people. Right? And so we're going to get into that, a little bit of that in the history of the church. But you'll see there's been an interesting shift in the basic understanding of worship in the last century or so that was never really a part of the history of the church before that, which is that worship is just one of the many things that Christians do. In the historical church, really up until sometime in the mid to early 20th century, 
Worship, especially in the earlier part of the church, was seen as the defining experience of the Christian life. Because that was the place by which you were actually connected to the very thing that makes you a Christian. And apart from that, nothing else works. Right? And we still have that sort of retained in our theology and in our practice here. But I also think one of the reasons I'm teaching this class is that the church has done a really bad job of teaching its members what exactly is going on in the defining experience of being a Christian. And it doesn't, the joy is, God is great at working through broken things because that's all he's got to work with. And the, the other joy is that even when you're not feeling it, our theology says God is still present doing his thing. But it becomes very difficult to connect to it when you don't know what's happening. So the example I give when I'm talking to families is I'll ask them, what's your favorite sport to watch on TV? So just throw out a sport. Baseball. Baseball, okay. You love watching baseball, and you love baseball, and you want your kids to love baseball, and so you're going to take them to a baseball game, right? And you might buy them a cute little jersey even before they even know what a baseball is or how to swing a bat or any of that stuff, right? Because you think there's value in going and observing the pastime of baseball even before they fully understand what's happening. But what do you do as they start to get older? Especially when they start to ask you questions. You teach them the rules of play. You teach them how the game works and what people are doing, right? So what I think the church has been doing for the last century, maybe more, um, is as if parents took their kids to baseball for 18 years, the kids asked questions about baseball, and the parents didn't really know how to explain any of the game to them. Okay. So there's a couple of, I think, quite normal human reactions to that sort of experience. One, I'm going to get out as soon as I can. I can't connect to anything. I don't know what's going on. My dad loves this or my mom loves this, but I, I can't really get into it. Two, maybe they're a really good child and they love their parents, and so they want to love the things their parents love. Well, they're going to come up with their own rules to make sense of what they're continually experiencing. And they might get some things right, but they're going to get a lot wrong. And the danger with that is there are certain things that if you miss, the whole thing isn't going to make sense. Right? Or the third is they're going to look for a different sport and they're going to research it on their own and they're going to watch it because they understand that one. Right? Yeah, Rob. Yes, and you're also in the process of doing the exact same thing by putting uh, the verses, by putting the chapter and verse down Back in the uh, hymnal, uh, you may not have noticed it yet, but like after uh, the invocation, it says Matthew 28, you know, 19b, and you look at, you know, what all the different things we do in the service, almost all of it is straight out of the Bible. Benediction, number 6, 24, 26. Yes. Uh, that's back in the, that's back in the, uh, whatever you call it. And bulletin. Yeah. Bulletin. It used to be there, and that, that was uh, crucial with helping me understand why I was in church, and it definitely increased my uh, desire to be there. Well, I think about and what that, that kind of information does for you, right? Especially if you're a new Christian, right? I come in, I go see a service, I don't really understand what's going on. Or I'm a young kid and I don't really understand what's going on, right? I could believe that the pastor of that church just made all that stuff up. Correct. Or that the church itself wrote all these things out and they all just agreed this is what they were going to say, Right. So I put those back in because I want you to know these aren't my words. They're not my ideas. Like something like the Sanctus is literally the straight out of the songs that Isaiah sees angels sing in heaven. 
That's why the church has been singing that for like 2,000 years. Right? So, uh, and there's even some scholars who think Jesus sung that in his worship at the temple. Right? Because it's present in the Old Testament, right? So we're using God's words. And one of the quotes that I'm going to share with you from the sheet I gave you talks about that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, turn to your sheet with the quotes that I gave you. So I have one other goal with this class. That goal is I want you to want to be at church on Sunday because of the joy and the peace and the beauty of what you're being given. Okay. And so I think that the church has not really talked about divine service honestly with what it actually is, which is the place where God meets his people on earth, like physically through his word, right? Gospel is touch at a distance, sound waves coming and hitting your ear, and through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we, we believe that these are the greatest of all gifts given in all of creation, from a gracious and loving God to an unworthy and sinful people. They are the things that make us Christians. And they are the things that sustain our Christian life after the fact. Okay, And so I want to talk about the service in such a way that you want to be here because it's beautiful and joyful. It brings you peace and it brings you the greatest of all treasures in heaven and on earth. Because that is what is happening on Sunday morning. Now, when's the last time you heard somebody talk about Sunday morning church service using those kinds of words? I didn't hear it much growing up. And when I did, even as a, as, a, as a Christian who grew up in a pastor's home, it always fostered a thought of me like, I want to know more about that. Or I just imagine that if I was a non-Christian hearing them describe their worship service that way, I'd be like, I don't know really what that guy's talking about, but that sounds pretty great. I want to learn a little bit about that. Uh, and I recently was listening to a video where a point was made that the, the strongest case for atheism is not, is not a, a, a rejection of God or any particular teaching of the Christian faith, or any religious faith for that matter. The most convincing argument for an atheist is an unhappy religious person. Why are they going to sign up to join your club if all you display is misery and a sense where you need to be right about everything and everybody else is wrong about everything? That's actually not the core of the Christian faith. The core of the Christian faith is the joy, the beauty, the peace, and the love of Jesus brought to you week in and week out through the gifts of word and sacrament. That is the joy of Sunday morning. So, this first quote is actually the introduction from the blue hymnal that's been sitting in your pew for probably, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. Uh, this was written by a professor at the seminary. He had, had moved on since I, before I was there. His name was Norman Nagel. And I want to, I'm going to read that, and I want you to kind of close your eyes and listen. Our Lord speaks, and we listen. His word bestows what it says. Faith is not born from what is heard, or is heard, acknowledges the gifts received with eager thankfulness and praise. Music is drawn into this thankfulness and praise, enlarging and elevating the adoration of our gracious giver, God. Saying back to him what he has said to us, we repeat what is most true and sure. Most true and sure is his name, which he put on us with the water of our baptism. We are his. This we acknowledge at the beginning of the divine service. Where his name is, there is he. Before him we acknowledge that we are sinners and we plead for forgiveness. 
His forgiveness is given us, and we, freed and forgiven, acclaim him as our great and gracious God as we apply to ourselves the words he has used to make himself known to us. The rhythm of our worship is from him to us, and then from us back to him. He gives his gifts, and together we receive and extol them. We build one another up as we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our Lord gives us his body and blood to eat and his his body and blood to eat and drink. He finally, is his blessing, moves us into our calling, where his gifts have their fruition. How best to do this we may learn from his word and from the way his word has prompted his worship throughout the centuries. We are heirs of an astonishingly rich tradition. Each generation receives from those who went before, and in making that tradition of the divine service its own, adds what best may serve in its own day, the living heritage and something new. So he goes on a little bit longer if you want to read it next Sunday. Just open up your blue hymnal. It's right in there in the introduction to the, the hymnal uh, for the Lutheran worship hymnal. But he highlights the main thing that we just, we just talked about, right? That it's this dynamic rhythm where God moves first, God speaks first, and we respond to what he says and what we're given. Okay? I have a question. Yeah. I'm struggling with that second I think sentence, that was a typo. Maybe third sentence. Faith is not born from Yeah, I think I accidentally typed that wrong. Okay. I think it is faith is born from what is heard. Okay. Yeah. I was just trying. So I, I, that's I, quite I a know. significant typo because <laughs> it makes the sentence mean the opposite of what it's supposed to mean. But yeah, faith, that's why I stumbled on that. Faith is born from what is heard, acknowledges the gifts received with eager thankfulness and praise. Right? That's what the expression of amen in the service is. It's the expression of faith agreeing with what's been said. Um, the second quote there, this is a, a guide to the order of worship from the Cathedral Church of Christ. The divine service is a tiny fragment of something else. It is a part of the worship which is offered to God by Christian people every hour of the day and night in every part of the world. When you come here, it is as if you are dropping in on a conversation already in progress. A conversation between God and his people which began long before you were born and will continue long after you are dead. So do not be surprised or disturbed if there are some things which you do not understand straight away. For a brief moment, you step into the continual stream of worship which is being offered today and will be offered to the end of time. You are one with those who worship here on earth and in heaven. So I want that to be what people think of when they think of worship here at Ascension Lutheran Church. The joyous feast where we receive the gracious gifts of a loving God that literally make us into his children and sustain that new life. Right? And when you talk about it in this way, people want to come. You want to come. Right? Another example I often, when I'm talking about this, I'll tell people, uh, have you been to a really good restaurant in Pittsburgh lately? What do you do when you go to a really good restaurant and you really liked it? You tell other people that you want to go and eat there, right? And what do you say to them? Like, oh, there's you got to wear certain clothes, and you got to do this thing, and it's going to cost this much money, right? You don't usually lead with that. What do you usually lead with? The food, was the food was amazing. You don't want to miss it, right? Dear friends in Christ here, the food is amazing. It's the best there are and is and will be in all of creation. That's the way Sunday morning should be. 
It's where the God of the universe meets you in love and gives you the best of all things. Okay. Okay. Now, um, we're going to look at a couple of scripture passages because you might be thinking, okay, that sounds really beautiful so far, Pastor, but we haven't even opened our Bible, so how do I know you're not just making all this up? Uh, Which would be a good question. So let's look at Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at verse 38 to 42. As soon as we get there, you're going to recognize this passage. It is Jesus visiting Mary and Martha. So we're looking at Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 38. And this is a valuable thing for us to read because in it, Jesus expresses a preference in the way in which he wishes to be received. Okay? Does somebody want to read that for us? It's pretty short, just 38 to 42. Got it. Okay, go for it. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay. So, was what Martha was doing bad? No. No. It was. But it wasn't bad because of the things she was doing. It was bad because of when she was doing it. So the Bible teaches pretty clearly that Anything, even your own family, can become evil if they seek to place themselves between you and Jesus. Okay, so that's why Jesus doesn't just say that I'm not going to ha- I'm not going to tell Mary to help you. He says she has chosen the better thing, and it's not going to be taken from her. Okay, so it's important to recognize that because. A lot of times people feel very judged when you tell them that they should have been in church when they should have been doing something else. If they're feeling that judgment from the way you told them, that's not great. If they're feeling that judgment because they have chosen the lesser instead of the one thing that is necessary, that's from God's word. Okay? Um, so that prompts us to think, and believe me, this is one of the things that a pastor can really get hung up on because it's easy to get worried about all the little details of the service. Because you want to you want to do it well, and you want to make sure all the dot, the the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. But if that becomes my focus, the main thing gets lost. Just as if I'm deciding not to come because I, there's this other thing, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. There's probably even some genuine benefits for you participating in said activity. But it's now become an act of wickedness because Jesus has shown up, and you're doing something else instead. So Jesus here expresses a preference that he wants us to sit at his feet and quietly receive the things he's come to give. Because if we're talking, we're not hearing. And he wants us to hear because he's come to give us the thing that we need, namely himself. Right? Okay, next turn to Luke 24, starting at verse 13. And I'm going to read this one because I'm going to stop at different points throughout it. So this is uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. 
And this is after Jesus has died on the cross and actually after he's risen from the dead. But the disciples in this story don't know any of that's happened yet. They only know the death part. Okay. So, so the resurrection has just happened and then this account starts with that very day. Okay. So this is the day of resurrection, the first Easter. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And then Jesus, he's playing along. He says, and what things? Even though he was literally part of those things. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Okay, let's stop right there. What did they call Jesus? A mighty prophet, right? They're leaving Jerusalem because they think it's over. Jesus is dead. And then what's the very next verse? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So they think the game's over. Jesus died. He wasn't the Messiah, proven by the fact that he's dead. If he was really the Messiah, he wouldn't have died. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had even seen, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So they've already heard that Jesus rose from the dead. Not only from these women, but Jesus has said it multiple times before his death that the Son of Man would suffer many things and die at the hands of evil men and on the third day rise. So something is still missing. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as they had said, but him they did not see. And now Jesus, I guess he's heard enough. And he says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, Verse 27 is the service of the word. They don't recognize the risen and victorious Jesus right in front of them. They've even been told he's raised, and yet they still don't see. And so what does Jesus do? He opens up the scriptures to them. What do we do in church? We read the word of God. That's one of the reasons why after it's read, the response is as if you've received a gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Because it is a gift. Because if he doesn't do this, who will they never see? Jesus. They will never see him. Okay? So they drew near to the village at which they were going. He, Jesus, acted as if he were going to go further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is evening, and the day is now far spent. If you've ever done evening prayer, that's where that line comes from. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. That's the service of the sacrament. So first the word is given to explain and teach all the things in the scriptures concerning Jesus. And then he brings us to his table, blesses and breaks, and then we see. So, they just ate at a really good restaurant. Yeah. yeah they, they him giving them body and blood, I guess. The Holy Seat. Word and sacrament. Yeah. That our belief, our confession is that is the only way by which we know Christ. Is that he reveals himself to us in his word and in his sacraments. Okay. So they just ate at the best restaurant ever. So what's their reaction? They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour. So remember, it was really late at night. They rose at that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, why do we come to worship? It's so that even when Jesus in our life is right in front of us, we can see him. Apart from those gifts, we don't recognize him. We don't see him. Right? Jesus is coming to these two guys. I mean, they're in the midst of the worst day of their lives. Their hopes and dreams have been shattered. Jesus, who they thought was the one to redeem Israel, is dead. And that same Jesus shows up and they don't know who he is. And so Jesus, in his mercy and in his grace, even though they've ignored the other testimony so far, opens up the scriptures to them and brings him to brings himself to them in the sacrament. So from the very beginning of the Christian church, the two primary aspects of worship are word and sacrament. And we're going to look at one more scripture passage that illustrates that. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 36. So this is the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter is giving his preaching sermon. He's preaching a sermon about Jesus inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you'll see a couple of interesting things happen here. So verse 36 is sort of the last line of Peter's sermon. It said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the main thrust of Peter's sermon is Jesus is the Christ, you killed him. Okay, What's their reaction? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayer. <coughs> so what's the first thing that the brand new Christian church does after a bunch of people just come to faith? They get baptized. They get baptized. And what comes after that? Continued steadfastly in doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, prayer. Those are all the elements of things you guys listed before we even start talking about anything that you thought of when the word worship was said. Okay? So the worship that we do on Sunday morning is the same worship that's been done since the beginning of the church. And there's a reason for that because it comes from God. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean there isn't flexibility with individual things within the service or the types of music you play and all that kind of stuff. But there is no flexibility in terms of the words that are being given because those words are coming from God. One of the pushbacks I get when I bring people to any Lutheran church, not just this one, is it's so Catholic. And I'm like, but this is pre-Roman Catholic. No, that's really good. So one of the one, one of the common criticisms is that the that the Lutheran Church feels very Catholic. Okay, uh, so in form, you can be comfortable saying sure. Right. But the Methodists have the same liturgy. The Anglicans have right. the same liturgy. I mean, it's just a Christian yeah. liturgy. So that's one way you can sort of redirect that. The other is <clears throat> ask them what's specifically Catholic about it. Because most of the time, people have a general impression. But, like, I mean, I just preached all about how Jesus stood in the place of the people of Israel, us, and did what we couldn't do and freely as of grace gave, it, gave his righteousness to us. That is not what the Catholic Church teaches. No. So when people say that, give them the benefit of the doubt that they're probably just referring to the way it appears to them. Which is fine. I mean, you not, can't necessarily expect somebody to, like that quote says, right? You're dropping in on a conversation that started a really long time ago and is going to continue on after you're dead. Don't be disturbed if you don't under, understand everything that's going on, right? That's been, that's been one of the real struggles the church has had in the last 60 years is the church wants everyone who's not a part of the church to understand everything it's doing. By definition, they cannot if you are actually doing the things of the church, right? Just like the Emmaus disciples who can't see Jesus right in front of them until they receive him in the way that he's meant to be received, somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus is not going to understand all the things that we're saying and doing on Sunday, and that's okay, because that is the gift that we are bringing that they do not currently have. But we have to be comfortable not being understood, and we live in a culture that was so predominantly Christian, we got very uncomfortable when it started to not be Christian and not understand us and not like us. And we're having to kind of recover our, our gumption about that idea. Right? You guys are called by Jesus into a life unlike any other. That outside of that, they're not going to understand. And that's the job that we've been given, is to bring these gifts 
in various forms that they experience most fully on Sunday morning to those who do not yet know Jesus. That's how they're going to know him. It seems like there's a, a stunted understanding of this in many non-denominational churches. And there's still, a, there's still a conversation. And Jesus does come to the people in some watered-down way through the message. And the people do do their the work of the people the, by you know offering praise music as much as it's I I I I I. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so there is a conversation. It's just not a full and rich conversation. Well, think about where those movements came from. They were born out of a soil sown with lack of teaching about Christian worship. So their kids grew up asking their parents, you know, this thing that is weird. And I don't see anywhere else. What is that for? Why do we do that? The church didn't teach their parents. The parents would say, that's what we've always done. Kid grows up. Eventually, that's no longer a sufficient answer. And so that, I think, was the group of people who started to make their own rules about. They knew something important was going on, but they didn't know that certain things were actually important for the, the, the sort of center of worship. And so they got rid of them, I think mostly, at least initially, not intentionally. Uh, I think the, a lot of it came from the music argumentation, but all the stuff that drove that was church is declining. There's got to be a reason it's declining. We must be doing something wrong. And what really got latched onto is our music is boring because you had the rise of rock and roll and and all that stuff. Our music is boring. We need to make our music more interesting to retain the children. Which I actually think if I had been in that time, I probably would have gone along with that line of thinking. It makes sense in the context. But what we're now getting to, and you're seeing this in the way things are sort of playing out quite naturally, is that settling down some because we're realizing it didn't solve the problem we were hoping it would. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's also the, the broader like counterculturalism, right? And the, the anti-establishment theme running through society in the 1960s and 70s, right? Because yeah. there was a distrust that was sown amongst a lot of people, right, in this time when people are questioning the government, right? They're questioning everything that was traditional, yeah. everything yeah. that was the same as their dad and their granddad and whatever, and, you know, it, it becomes a liability. And so churches know, isn't, you know, why, why not look at church and say, oh, how can we, uh, you know, sex it up a little bit and right. make it... Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of like, you see the, the, the pendulum swinging, right? If we step back long enough, I'm sure you have, like, I mean, what about the 1920s? Like, sure. that was pretty wild, too, right? I mean, well, and I mean, you can even look back to the Reformation, right? The Reformation was started by the same sort of thing. The church had gone on to things outside of the scriptures and um, brought about by new inventions in the world, the, the printing press, and then also... Uh, Erasmus's Greek New Testament, where all you had before that for a thousand years was the Latin Vulgate, which was a really bad translation. Um, and all of a sudden then, you start getting people who are like really digging into the scriptures and saying, wait a minute, uh, I think there was one quote in our men's Bible study yesterday from the video we watched that said, either this isn't the Bible or we aren't Christians, was the result that somebody had from translating from the Greek, from what they were taught in the church. Right. So this is sort of a common thing within the church. And I think in some ways what, the, what our culture has gone through, you, you know, you don't want to sort of 
um, pretend like there weren't bad things that happened, but I think it was somewhat inevitable given the nature of humanity and what, we were, what was going on in the world. And so what is the job of the church? The job of the church is to preserve the gifts of God according to his own word. And so you're seeing uh, in the Catholic um, circles, there's a return of the Latin mass largely being driven by young men because they're feeling that the new, the new masses that are going on are disconnected from the history of the church. They're disconnected from the timeless things of the worship of a God. And you're beginning to see that in other denominations as well, that just singing songs and hearing somebody talk doesn't necessarily feel like church to a lot of people, largely because, and we've, we've been victims of this too, I think the other main element in this discussion is that because of rationalism, we've really toned down the supernatural, mysterious aspects of faith. Not just us, but all Christian denominations in the West. And if somebody asks you why you believe, you're naturally going to say, well, I, I read this thing and I heard this, this line about Jesus and it made sense to me, so I believed. In our confession of faith, that is incorrect. That is not why you believe. You believe because you were supernaturally given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. That's the only reason that thing that was said to you made any sense to you. Okay? And if you start from that premise, the Christian life is a totally different animal. Because it didn't start with an act of your own self-will. Instead, it started with an act from God, which is why our worship service reflects that interaction. That there's no reason for us to be there unless God doesn't do something first. Unless he forgives our sins and calls us to repentance, we're not confessing. Nor are we singing the hymn of praise after we receive the forgiveness of sins, celebrating the joy that we have in that gift. We're not singing the hymn of the day after the, the readings in the sermon because we haven't heard any of his word. Unless we do. Right? We're not singing the songs during communion and the post-communion song of praise until we receive those gifts from God. Right? And so for my money, I genuinely don't care what kind of instrument you put music to. It does not matter to me one bit. But if you start taking out the word of God, you start removing the sacraments, I'm going to be a very disagreeable fellow. Okay? So there's quite a bit of flexibility within the worship service, but the core of things has shifted away from the activity of God to our activity. That's why I started by asking you what you thought of when you heard the term worship. And almost every answer was the stuff that I do. Now don't get me wrong, that stuff's good. It's the right response of faith, but it makes no sense apart from the gifts. Because you don't have faith and you don't have anything to be thankful for unless Jesus comes to you in your depressed, shattered life and says, you don't have death to look forward to, you have life to look forward to. And it's given to you not by a work that you do yourself, but by me. Right? And then all that stuff makes sense. Okay? So, the, and, and, I don't, and I'm not saying all this, I want to clarify, so that you will feel very judgmental about other ways of worshiping. Okay? Because like the non-denominational stuff we got, what the proper reaction to that should be sadness and compassion. Because from our standpoint, they're depriving themselves of the greatest gifts that God is trying to give them. They're still getting some of them because, as you mentioned, 
I've heard really great non-denominational sermons. Very biblical, very true, right? So they're still receiving the gifts of God through those sermons, but they've deprived themselves of all the other things he's trying to bring to them to their own detriment, right? And so I'm advocating for this not because I want you to be angry that everybody else is doing something different. I'm advocating for this because this is the way Jesus reveals himself to you. This is the way that when you're walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is right there with you in the midst of your pain, you'll actually see him. Rather than thinking he's nowhere to be found. Okay. Now, uh, the, the last thing, what time is it? 12.04, okay. So the last thing I'll bring up, and we'll talk about this mostly next time, is there's a dynamic in worship, in Christian worship in the divine service, that needs to be honestly assessed, and that is the dynamic between spiritual awakening and liturgy. And so we'll really get into the definition of liturgy next week, because liturgy is a very confused term. But this dynamic, and a lot of the quotes in on your page, at the bottom and then on the back, are related to this. And he uses the term awakening versus liturgy to highlight the two necessary aspects of the church and the way God interacts with his people. Awakening, um, let's see if I've got it here. Yeah, so the second to last quote, starting with probably we could express. Probably we could express the difference between the two by saying that awakening is like the fire of the Lord which fell upon the water-drenched altar of Elijah. It is the incalculable sovereign invasion of God which reveals his power among the heathen. So that would be the people who were cut to the heart by Peter's sermon. Right? Liturgy, on the other hand, is that fire which burns upon the altar in the temple and about which the scriptures proclaim that it must never be extinguished. Awakening is a lightning from above that ignite a new fire. Liturgy is the flame of the Lord already burning among us, lighting and warming the faithful. So in our culture, these two elements of the Christian faith have been made at odds with one another. And you see that borne out in the way that different churches worship. So the non-denominational church has gone away from the form because as he points out in the article I took this from, the form can become an armor that actually protects you from doing the things that God is asking you to do. You can become too obsessed with the form and it can insulate you and prevent the awakening that God is trying to do. Okay? But the danger of the awakening is that your awakening is by definition a powerful experience of divine intervention in your life, like the creating of your faith would be a good example, and it can become so much so that you think everything needs to go along in turn with that. And so I experienced God on a camping trip with a friend of mine, and so you don't need to go to church because I can experience God in nature would be an example of where the awakening is used against liturgy. Because the devil, it, he doesn't stop after you hear the gospel. Right? So he wants to turn the greatest of goods that God is giving you against themselves. And so the dynamic that we're going to talk about in this class isn't that we're just going back to the worship of 1357. Okay? Um, because 1357 had its own problems and they were doing things in worship that we don't want to emulate. But the living and rich inheritance that we've been given in tandem with the new thing that we're going to bring to it. And it may not be exactly what you think it's going to be. Okay? So these two things are actually meant to work together. Right? 
The one creates the new fire, the other sustains it and protects it. And so I'm not just interested in people coming to faith in Christ. I'm interested in that happening to them and them getting connected to the gifts he's going to bring them to sustain that new life that they've been given. This is one of the reasons that when I do baptisms, I really want to meet with people and talk about it beforehand. I'm not just going to say, yeah, it's a gracious gospel thing, let's just do it. Because I'm doing them a disservice about the nature of that gift. It's not a one and done eternal life insurance policy. It's the introduction to the life connected to Jesus on his terms. Right? So uh, read a couple of those other quotes from that article. I think that's a really helpful dynamic as we talk about this because I don't want you to put up barriers in your mind to what we discuss because you're worried that something you like that we do here or that you think we should do here is going to be dismissed by our study or whatever. Okay? Our goal is good, true, faithful worship of God while genuinely recognizing to the best of our sinful human abilities the gracious gifts that he's giving to us. Okay, And it's not that those gifts don't come to you even if you don't understand what's going on. It's just that you connect to them less. And it's easier for the devil and your own flesh to convince you they're unnecessary when in fact they aren't. So I want worship to begin to, begin to become for you again, like it was for the early church, the primary experience of your Christian life. It's where you meet the divine and he gives you his gifts. That occurs nowhere else. That's why Jesus bothered to create the church in the first place, so that his gifts could be brought to you. All right, um, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.